Well, this morning we have a chance to look at John chapter 10, the first 10 verses. John chapter 10 gives us two interrelated but very distinct pictures of Jesus from his own lips. We get to hear that he is the door of the sheep, and that he's the good shepherd of the sheep. And that's his own self-assessment. That is his own self-identification. In other words, Jesus is not a, not a wax nose that we can shape according to our preferences and our needs and our likes and our biases. But he gives us his own self-identification so that we can know him as he really is. And I would submit that as we come to know the real Jesus as he is, we actually come to know ourselves as we really are too. We come and rec- recover our real humanity, our joy and our hope and our beauty and our purpose that we are designed to enjoy. Well, this morning we're going to pay particular attention to John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, in which Jesus introduces the first of those images, that he is the door of the sheep. In other words, he, is a, he makes a way for us when there is no way. So let me pray, uh, let me read out the scripture, we'll pray together, and then we'll consider this passage this morning. John chapter 10, verse 1 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Would you pray with me as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning? Lord, you know uh, all the places that we've come from and we are in as we uh, assemble this morning to worship you. Lord, you know the things that uh, press us down, that make us feel as if there is no way out. Lord, you know that some of us are hanging on the edge of life, looking for another handhold, frantically hoping that by somehow finding ourselves in a worship service of all places, that we would hear a word from God. And so I pray that you'd come and speak that word. Lord, others of us are numb and hard to your, to your gospel. We feel as if we've walked too far away, that we've indulged too many times, that we really don't understand how you would um, ever be able to penetrate the obstacles of our lives. And we pray that you'd come and speak a word to us in that place. Lord, others of us are hungry. We want to hear of your grace and your mercy. We want to hear that you really are a good shepherd and that you really do make a way when there is no way. So I pray that you'd come and speak that word to us. Lord, wherever we are, come and meet us in that place. Speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. Amen. I read not too long ago of a man named Paul Bacon. Paul Bacon is a uh, New York City policeman. He wrote a book called Bad Cop in which he details some of his uh, lighter moments and more serious moments working in the, uh, the police force in the New York City Police Department. And he told one story of the time in which he had been working a 4 to 12 a.m. shift, sort of, a, sort of a late shift, and he had been asked to go by his um, superior to go to a completely different precinct and back that shift up with a whole other uh, 
litany of service. He was going to be up all night. So he'd work from 4 to 12, and then he was going to work the second shift at a security booth with one other officer. It was sort of a, a homeland security terrorist detail overlooking this, this parking lot that they, they'd seen some suspicious activity in. So he is working a second shift back-to-back, and at 2 a.m., his partner goes and takes a break for an hour, and then comes back and relieves Paul at 3 a.m. And by the time he is exhausted, he is looking forward to simply getting in his cruiser, driving to the accompanying parking lot, uh, relaxing, taking a nap, and then coming back um, after his break. Well, he gets in the car, he drives to the neighboring parking lot, 60 feet away from the booth that he's manning with this other companion. And he is trying to sit in the front seat of his cruiser. He's feeling the, the, the first initial uh, throes of sleep coming on him, and yet he can't get comfortable because he's sitting in the front seat of a car. He's thinking, I could just, I just can't get comfortable. So he takes off his radio, takes off his keys, and he, and he thinks, there's this whole back seat right behind me. I could lay down in the back seat. I could be comfortable. Sleep would come on quickly. And so he says, that's what I'll do. He, he, uh, he sets his watch alarm. He stretches out in the back seat. He pulls the door closed. And he's, he's all set for a great nap. He's all set for, um, for this uh, res- restoration of sleep in the midst of this long, long day he's gone in. Well, he wakes up minutes later in sheer terror. Absolute panic. His watch alarm has not gone off. He has this haunting, jolting realization of what he's just done. He has locked himself in the back of his own police car. If you know anything about police cars, they're basically a rolling jail cell, right? You do not get out of the back of a police car. He's left his keys and his radio in the front seat. He's, the, the divide is there. He is stuck. He has absolutely incarcerated himself. He's locked himself in this airtight, noise-proof, bulletproof jail cell on the back of his car. And so he does what anyone else does. He starts pulling at the door handles. He knows it's not going to work, but he starts pulling at it, thinking perhaps it'll open up. It doesn't. Then he bloodies his knuckles, punching the window, thinking he can break the window, that he can get the attention of his companion. Then he lays down on his back and just starts hitting his feet as hard as he can, trying to bust the door open, all in complete and utter futility. Sixty feet away is his companion, who could come and simply with three fingers pull up the latch, he'd be free. But he, he can't get the guy's attention. But there's a sidewalk that runs behind the, the parking lot, and he's thinking maybe someone will pull up here in the middle of the night, right, and let me out. And so uh, the, the windows are all fogged up. He writes a, a message on the, uh, on the window that says, Help. And it, 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 uh, at uh, 3 a.m. on the dot, a Pepsi delivery truck pulls up right behind him. And he sees the man get out, so he's, he renews his efforts at trying to get his attention. He's banging, he's yelling, he's, 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 um, he's beating the, the doors with his hands. The, the truck driver walks up to the car, peers in the window, through the words, the, the letters of the message for help, and then turns and walks away. Because who lets a screaming maniac out of the back <laughs> of a police car? So he thinks, I've got to communicate better with people, so he writes, help, dot, 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 I'm a cop. Um, on, on the window. And so he sits there, locked in the back of his police car, locked in the door, because he's pulled the door of his own car shut. How humiliating to sit there knowing that he's the one who's responsible for it all. Well, if you're anything like me, you know, just like Officer Bacon here, the humiliation of self-incarceration, right? You know what it's like to make choices 
to lay plans, to do decisions in which you find yourself later imprisoned in brokenness, in sin, in cycles of dysfunction. You know what it's like to be stuck at that impasse of your desires, however real and strong and inborn they are, and to know that God's commands tells us to do something different with those desires. You know what it's like to, to wake up to the stalemate of your hopes and your dreams to meet the hard edge of God's sovereignty and His provision. You know what it's like to, to bounce around the cul-de-sac of addictions. You know it's like to bounce around the cul-de-sac of, of, of relationships that just don't work out. They always turn back in on you and you never can make any progress. You know what it's like to be confined and restricted by dead ends. Jobs that seem like they're going nowhere fast. Relationships that seem like they're going nowhere fast. Processes that promise some sort of hope but never, ever quite pan out. You know what it's like, and I know what it's like this morning, to be locked in and feel like there is no way out. Or to be on the outside looking in and feel like there's no point of entry, there's no way in. And the door could be a way in or could be a way out. It could be a place of access, it could be a place of release. It becomes so crucial, right? And here we come to John 10 this morning, and in Jesus' own words, his own self-characterization it becomes so alluring to us. He says, I am the door. He is not just wasting words here. He is giving us something that is absolutely crucial for people who feel like they are incarcerated at their own hands or the hands of another. But think about it. Jesus says, I'm the door. Is there anything so ordinary, so boring, so normal, so easily overlooked, so, so easily trivialized and presumed upon so unable to capture imagination as a door. Until, until you are locked in and you have no way of release. Or until you feel like you're locked out and you have no point of access. So Jesus is not wasting words here this morning. He's speaking wonderful words, beautiful words of possibility and hope and life for people who know what it's like to be under wraps, to be confined to be behind a door or outside of a door. And so this morning, it bears us taking some time to consider, what does it mean when Jesus says He's the door? There's there's several things I want us to see from this passage. That He is the door of salvation. He promises to be the door of security for us, and He promises to be the door of sanity for us. So in the first place this morning, Jesus says, I'm the door of salvation. Look there at verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In the same breath as Jesus is declaring, as he's promising salvation, he's also doing something so important for every single one of us in this room this morning. He is expressing the utterly realistic view of the gospel. His utterly realistic assessment of me and of you in our world. He, he owns up to the fact that this abundant life, this salvation that He promises, is not our experience. He is honest about the shalom, that abundant life, that wholeness and flourishing and delight that has been promised to us, that has been built into us through God, has been graffitied, has been vandalized, it has been marred by brokenness and sin. And what Jesus says is, there are real enemies in this world, There's real opposition. There are real thieves of your dignity and humanity and peace. And so what he says, that when he says, I've come to give you life and to give it life abundantly, I've come to to be a point of salvation for you, 
It might sound hollow for some of us because we're so accustomed to brokenness and friction and thieves and opposition. But what Jesus is saying, he's the door of salvation in the midst of that world, not in some world in the by, in, in, in the, in the by and by. He's talking about this world. This world, he's the door of salvation. And we know what it's like to feel those, those oppositions and that friction in our lives. Sometimes it's opposition from the outside. Yeah, I was reading uh, in, in The Onion the other day, um, absolutely beautiful. Uh, the, the headline that caught my attention was, Bob Marley rises from the grave to free frat boys from the bonds of oppression, right? <laughs> Everybody is oppressed nowadays. Um, it says this, minutes after his resurrection, the dreadlocked spirit materialized in the backyard of Epsilon Iota at the College of William & Mary. He was radiating in a transcendent aura, and Marley addressed the college's recent campus-wide ban on bonfires. I appeared to my fraternity brothers to tell them to be strong. I say, don't let the dean of students, Henry uh, Rygert, fool you or even try to school you. We'll get that bonfire going in time for Demixermon. A fire is a man's own business. Everyone's oppressed, right? And we can laugh at that, but in some sense, we really have been oppressed. Some of you have felt the hard edge of oppression simply because of the color of your skin. Some of us have felt the hard edge of oppression simply because of our sexuality and how we express that. Some of us have felt the hard edge of oppression and the real glory thief because of the neighborhood in which we live, our social status, the education or lack of education we have. And so we feel those things pressing in from outside of us. And at the same time, we feel the, the opposition from the inside. So many of us want to live by the light of our own devices and torches because we're the only ones that we can really trust. And we've got to keep that balance of power intact. We make the calls, and yet we feel at the same time that we just can't keep it all together. Another article caught my attention recently called uh, Green and Guilty. It was an interview with all the leading authors and proponents of the Green Movement in the United States. And it's called Green and Guilty because these people fessed up to the fact that they weren't even good enough to live up to their own standards, even though they had bought carbon offsets um, to, to counteract how much gas they would use, and they planted trees to counteract the, the lumber they'd use in building, and they'd, they'd uh, refurbished uh, wood two and three times to build their coffee table. Each of them, to a person, confessed that they were addicted to disposable diapers. That was their one greeny flaw that they could not overcome. This one guy said, we've tried cloth and think it's totally unrealistic. <laughs> and that's really environmentally sinful. It's a plastic derived from petroleum. You use them once, it gets tossed into landfill. It's a terrible, in- inefficient use of natural resources. He said, not only do I feel guilt, but I feel hypocritical. But they're the most functional diapers we've found. And it, it's, to a person, they would say, we can't even live up to our own standards. And there's this impasse of the good standards they have, beautiful standards they have, and not being able to actually live up to those standards. And so whether you find yourself at the impasse of the broken world, opposition from the outside, or your broken heart, the inability to even live up to your own standards, Jesus comes to us at that point of confinement, that point of impasse, and says, I open up a door for you. He says, I am the door of salvation. Whoever enters by me will be saved. He says, I'm going to give you a way out from and access into that restoration of life the way it was designed to be, that intimacy and knowledge and freedom that you were designed for. And so on the cross, Jesus stares 
a broken world that vandalized Shalom in the face, and he says, I'll take it all so they won't have to take a bit of it. He defeats sin in you and in me, for you and for me. That is the present tense reality. That is the salvation. That is the now of the gospel. The guilt of our shameful failure and loss and our spiritual inability is swallowed up by the door of salvation. All of our attempts to self-shepherd and self-salvation, all the strategies to not have to need Jesus at all, are swallowed up by the fact that He is the door of salvation. He opens up a door of salvation for us. And I simply have to ask you this question this morning. And I have to ask myself this question this morning. Have you walked through that doorway of salvation? In all seriousness, I can say it is not enough to simply agree with the door of salvation. To nod our heads and say amen in tacit theoretical acceptance of it. It's not enough to be able to describe the door and to defend the door and to distinguish it from other doors. It's not enough to have it as an official tenet of your theology. It's not enough to be emotionally moved by the door or to be inspired to live a better life because of the person and work of Jesus. It's not enough to be scared to death this morning saying, oh my goodness, this could be real. I better get my act together because of the door. It's not enough to preach a sermon on the door, to give a devotional on the door, to teach a Sunday school lesson on the door. Have you and I walked through the door of salvation that Jesus sets before us day by day? If you are lingering on the threshold, postponing the choice, presuming that door is always going to be there, it's just a matter of time and a matter of convenience, are you sure that you'll always see that door? Are you sure that you'll always care enough to acknowledge the door? Are you sure that you'll always have a soft heart towards the open door of salvation? Jesus says, I am the door of salvation. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Have we walked through it? Well, in the second place this morning, we say, great, salvation. I've heard it a million times. What a great concept. But I don't want to leave it simply as a mental concept or some distant, intangible sort of transaction with Jesus Because you and I have plenty of real threats in here and now, don't we? If we sat here this morning, we could come up with a litany of all the dead ends and obstacles and confining circumstances that we face right now. And so Jesus is not content just to leave it as a matter of of distant transaction in heaven with Him. He wants to dig in the details of your life and say that He's not just a door of salvation, but He's a door of security in the face of those confining circumstances, in the midst of those dead ends. And so in verses 7-10, through 10, we see him listing that there really are real enemies, there really are real threats to the sheep. He talks about strangers who would come and lure you away under false pretenses. He talks about thieves and robbers who want to come in and take your liberty. There really are things relationally and spiritually and economically and physically and vocationally that you have to face up to day by day that can undo you and harm you and stifle you and mar you, right? Jesus knows that there really are places in which we are radically insecure and radically vulnerable. We have an open flank. And so He doesn't promise us to be a door of salvation sometime in the future. 
He promises to be a door of security in the here and now. So as you stare at those confining obstacles, those things that threaten to undo you, there are kind of a couple options we can take. We can live as our own security system, can't we? And a lot of us have taken this track. You have lots of self-confidence. You have a plan for your life, and you can pull it off. This, you've been a success of the things you've attempted, and you've assembled a resume, and you've, uh, you've constructed a network, and things bode well for the future because you have worked hard. And so you trust yourself, you trust your intuition, you trust your instincts, you know how to act fast and make decisions when it calls for it. And so you're secure because you have been strong and you've secured yourself. And yet, at night, just before you fall asleep, there's that sneaking suspicion that creeps in that says, I can't be vigilant all the time. I can't be on top of all things, everywhere, all the time. And so living our own security system has chinks and it has vulnerabilities. Others of us live with no security system at all, right? We've been plagued by doubt. We've failed. We, uh, we, we regret. Uh, we're haunted by regrets and indecision. We're paralyzed by our circumstances. We live in utter fear of failure. And so life is this big minefield for us. And we're trying to navigate it, just hoping that we won't get blown up. We won't get blown to bits. But if we can be beautiful enough and busy enough and network with the right people enough and have enough wealth and comfort and significance and intelligence, perhaps we can navigate that minefield of life without losing a limb, without losing our lives. Here's the beautiful comfort of this passage. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm the door of salvation. He says, I'm the door of security. I was reading uh, uh, this ancient Near Eastern scholar who was writing a, a landmark commentary on the book of John, and he wanted to understand better what Jesus meant by saying that I'm the door of the sheep. And so he went and spent time with ancient Near Eastern, uh, or he went to, not ancient, uh, he went to spend time with Middle Eastern shepherds. So he actually lived with shepherds for a while, and so he was going with this one shepherd to the, uh, he was herding his flock, and night was starting to fall, and he was gathering his sheep into a sheep pen. It was a mud hovel there. It had um, no roof. It had some briars and thorns around the edges of the walls to keep intruders out. And the shepherd gently got all of the herd into the, uh, into the sheepfold there. And there was this huge doorway. And so the commentator asked him, where is the door? And uh, not quoting the Gospel of John, the shepherd said, I'm the door. And he said, what on earth do you mean? And he said, well, I physically lay down over the threshold of the, of the sheep pen at night so that if a wolf wants to get in, it's got to crawl over my body. And if a sheep wants to get out, it's got to crawl over my body. And the beautiful thing about Jesus being the door of security for us this morning is that He lays down over the threshold of your life. Every single one of you. That whatever gets into your life, whatever goes out from your life, has to physically pass through the filter of His sovereign care for you. The sovereign door is the good shepherd. He lays down over the threshold of your life. He's a filter for everything that comes in or goes out from you. Now, once that is deeply, deeply comforting, isn't it? That you don't have to live as your own security system. You don't have to live as if life is a big minefield and you've got to navigate it and just try not to get blown up. Because someone who is more vigilant, who is more powerful, who is indeed present and sovereign in your life, 
lays down, and nothing comes into your life, nothing goes out from your life apart from His sovereignty. Deeply comforting. But if we're honest this morning, deeply unnerving too. Because things have come into your life. Things have come into my life. Desires, temptations, loss, death, pain. Things have shown up on your doorstep, uninvited, unasked for, and unmanageable, and it hurts. Why would God let that come in to your life? And it takes your faith in the deep waters, and you say, what can be the meaning of this? And as you look out at your lives, I know, too, that things have gone out from your lives. Relationships, loves, freedoms, dreams, opportunities, things that seem like this is going to be God's best for me, and it just vanished into thin air. It just slipped through your fingers. What is going on here? The sovereign door is the good shepherd. If you feel betrayed this morning, if you feel like someone has abandoned you and stomped on your heart, the good shepherd knows what that is like. He's felt his dearest friends leave him in his most vulnerable times. If you face temptations in which you think, there is no way I can get over this. There is no way I can get out from this. I must give in. I must indulge. The Good Shepherd has been tempted with power, with riches, with freedom, with comfort. And he chose a bloody path to salvation for you instead of giving in to that temptation. If you've been treated unjustly, if you've been looked down upon, if you've been condescended to, if you've been shut out simply because of who you are, Jesus knows what it's like. The Good Shepherd knows what it's like to be treated unjustly. He was condemned for something he never even did. The beautiful comfort of this passage is Jesus is a door of salvation, yes, but he's also a door of security. He lays down over the threshold of your life. And his sovereign act as being the door is undergirded by the fact that he's a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so this this evening, when you put your head on your pillow at night, you can be secure, not because you control, not because you even understand why things have come into your life or why things have gone out, You can be secure not because you're so vigilant and on top of things. You can be secure even though you are weak and fragile and short-sighted. You can be secure tonight for one reason and for one reason alone. You have a door of security that is guarded, that is overseen by the shepherd of your souls. And so this morning we see that Jesus is not only the door of salvation, He's not only the door of security, He's also the door of sanity. I love verse 9. It says, I am the... uh, I'm the, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And in this phrase here, it says, he will go in and go out and find pasture. The reason why I love that, the reason why it's so poignant for me, is that once you are saved by grace, and once you're secured by the sovereign care of God, something like a, a calmed, contented rest can enter into your life. And that promises the presence of sanity, Right? It's so strange. You're dependent and you find God sufficient. You're calmed, not because you have a a white-knuckled grip on your life and you're in control, but simply because someone else does the same thing for you. You can go in and go out and you can find pasture. Isn't that beautiful? The grace of Christ, the security of the gospel, gives you back humanity as you were intended to enjoy it. You're never more authentically human You're never more yourself than when you are secured by, resting in, feasting upon, living off of God's grace, His pasture of grace. 
So rather than flurry in frenzied panic and white-knuckled grip on your life, instead of scattering your hopes onto anyone and anything that seems like it could be a life preserver, you settle a great issue in your heart. I am secured by the Lord Jesus. I am saved by His grace. And therefore, the mania can be removed and I can become a creature again. The right kind of dependence. I think what Jesus is advocating here is is what is often called the normal Christian life. A, A life of perspective. A life of discernment. A life of sanity. Honesty, yes. Realism, yes. But hope and courage, not because you've secured your own life, but because He has secured it for you. So often I hear about the victorious Christian life. People are looking for great things to do. They're looking for secret things to know. They're looking for strategies to present to Jesus to say, I'll never need to be shepherded again. Look how much I've grown. Look how much I've matured. The gospel is here to enable me to self-shepherd so I can go and shepherd other people. That's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian life at all. The Christian life is saying, I am secured by the Lord Jesus. I'm saved by His grace. Therefore, I can go in and out, go in and, out and find pasture. So many times I have students come to me and say, I'm not a Christian because I struggle with this. I'm not a Christian because I don't keep up this regimen of prayer and Bible study. I love prayer and Bible study. But the real deal is, you are a Christian not because you have ceased to struggle, because you've discovered some secret of self-shepherding. You're a Christian because you're a sheep, and you would be absolutely devastated if you're left to your own devices. And so what that means is we can live the normal Christian life. We can quit looking to our work, into into people, into possessions to be the Messiah they were never meant to be. You can quit saying, relationship, fill me up. Be Jesus for me. Little pieces of paper that have green ink on them called money, be my Messiah for me. Uh, Possessions, be my Messiah for me. You can quit trying to get something out of creation that was never meant to give you. I was recently reading about, uh, in, in uh, the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, it brought to mind the horrible, gruesome uh, reality of the concentration camps and the work camps all across uh, Europe during the, uh, the Nazi regime. And one of the most gruesome ironies out of all of that uh, that I've seen was that over the uh, very prominently displayed this kind of 16-foot, hundreds of pound iron saying as you entered into Dachau, as you entered into Auschwitz, where millions lost their life, was a phrase that said, work will set you free. You can't say to work, free me. It leads only to a death. And so what does this sanity look like? It looks like you are free to fill a small space You're free to, as Jesus, as Georgia said last week, to go into all areas of life and testify to and embody that Jesus is Lord. There's a sanity to your life. Doesn't mean you're free from, it's not a charmed life, it's just a sane life. A life in which you can go in and go out and find pasture. Jesus says he's the door of salvation for people who need a way out. He says he's the door of security for people who are tired of being your own security system. He says, I'm the door of sanity for those who want the presence of calm and contentment to be human again. Well, Paul Bacon was sitting there in the back of his police car. He'd bloodied his knuckles. He'd written messages in uh, the uh, (laughs) condensation on the windows. 
And in all the panic and all the flurry, he had forgotten that he actually had a cell phone on him. A cell phone that he'd never really used at all because it was just sort of issued by the department. And so as a cop, he opens up his flip phone and he dials the most humiliating number (laughs) you could dial for a cop stuck in the back of your own police car. He dials 911. And he talks to the dispatcher and it's in the middle of the night. His partner is frantic, not knowing where he is. And he says, I am locked in the back of my police car. Could you please send someone over to let me out? And he said, please, code it as a non-emergency call. Because if you, get the non, if you get the emergency call from an officer, it means that an officer is down and that the whole force shows up to save the guy. He hung up the phone, and that's when he heard the sirens. A lot of sirens. <laughs> the whole police force showed up because the, the dispatcher coded it as an emergency. Officer down. They woke up everybody in the whole precinct, all the lights, all the sirens, and then he sees his partner walking the 60 feet across the parking lot, lifts up the back door, he is out. What a humbling, humiliating, awkward, honest moment for him. But here's the deal. If you can bring yourself to that point of awkwardness and humility and honesty, the Lord Jesus will marshal together every force of heaven and earth to be the door for you. He promises to be the door of salvation for people who need a way in or a way out. He promises to be that point of access, that point of release. He promises to lay down across the threshold of your life and nothing, nothing comes in or goes out from your life apart from His goodness. So the question for us this morning is, does that give us sanity? Does it give us a new resolve to go and do battle, to be creaturely, to be human? Does it give us the eyes to see the beauty of that door? Not just as a normal, trivialized, easily overlooked thing, but as something we want to walk through and find pasture on the other side. Jesus says He is the door, and that is good news for people who feel locked in.